I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Oh, it's a bit emotional. We've got to the end of this series. Our list of top tens with Kevin Turner. Uh, sixth and final one today. It's been a, a fun series today this time. Yeah, I hope it's yeah. been a bit broader and because obviously series two was quite niche, wasn't it, with some of the sort of historic race mm. teams. So I'm hoping this one has kind of perhaps been a broader brush strokes. Um, but hopefully it's been quite fun. But I don't feel too emotional with these, you see, because uh-huh. I'm always on the next thing. I've always got the next top ten list. I feel like the pressure... Yeah to uh, keep delivering some of these lists, you see. So I'm, I'm already thinking about the next ones. Jake Boxall, like, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So here we go. Last one, Kev. And what's our topic this week? So this is the 10 best F1 cars that didn't win the yes. World Championship Grand Prix. So it's the opposite to what we did in the last episode, which was terrible cars that somehow won. These yeah. are good cars that somehow didn't, which so, yeah. I, I hope is a nice, you know, giving some credit it's nice. where it's due, that it, cars that aren't in the record books. I suppose we did the, we did the drivers one, didn't we? We yeah, did the yeah, best yeah. drivers that didn't win a World Championship race. So this is the car version. Well, last week the list got worse as we got on. This week the list can get better and better as we get on. Yeah, the top few cars yeah. on this list are really, pretty cool. How yeah. did that not win a championship race? Let's kick us off in 10th place. So 10th is the Williams FW06, uh, 1970. Eight, uh, and it wasn't particularly special. It wasn't brilliant. It was only eighth fastest car of the season, although uh, things did vary back in the 70s a bit more. So the, the, the order changed from weekend to weekend more than it tends to these days. But it was a really important car. It was the f- sort of first, I, I think it was the first proper Williams, really, uh, even though it's called the FW06. It's, yeah, it's Patrick Head's c- uh, car. This is when they, Williams got up and running with Alan Jones. Um, and he he, uh, he grabbed everyone's attention at, at Long Beach. He charged up to second before he had a misfire. Uh, and then at Watkins Glen, he qualified third and finished second. Um, so there's not really a race, as some of these will get onto higher up the list, where they, oh, this car definitely should have won that race. Mm. It was really unlucky. It doesn't really have that. I just think it, it, it's kind of, that's why it's in at 10. It was just a, a, a decent car. Patrick Hedwig spoke to about this a few years back about this car. And he said, yeah, the quality control wasn't that yet. That yet there mm. so the reliability wasn't as good as it should have been but it's it's a really important moment it's the Patrick Head Frank Williams Alan Jones coming together and showing I think this is the first sign that they're going to be serious 
uh, and of course within a year they were they were winning races and fighting for championships JBL what are your thoughts on this it's quite a solid card to start off with I think um it was a little bit unreliable back in the day because, as, as Kev has already said, Williams was just getting off the ground at this point because the, the former Frank Williams uh, racing cars team that had run customer chassis was, was bought out by Wolf, not any relation to Toto. Uh, it was a Canadian oil magnate, uh, Walter Wolf. So he Frank Williams started again and started a new team with Patrick Head. And, and it was kind of the, the precursor of what was to come over the next few years. They managed to get all this this money in from, uh, you know, basically doing what is happening now and getting money from Saudi Arabia. Frank Williams was maybe a little bit ahead of his time uh, with the Saudi Air car. So it was a strong start for, for Williams in uh, a time where they didn't necessarily have the, you know, everyone was investing in ground effects at this point. And, and Williams had come in and come in with something that looked considerably smaller compared to those ground effect cars. Um, and it wasn't until the sort of FW07 and FW8 that it started to invest into into that as a as a vein of performance. So um, yeah, it was uh, in, an interesting side note to it as well is that uh, motorcycling Lewis Duncan all like this fact that motorcycling royalty uh, Giacomo Agostini bought it for the British F1 championship in uh, 1979 1980 so. oh yeah had quite a nice livery on it I think at that stage he did yeah there you go. Right. In ninth place, what's next? So this car thing is a really cool looking car. So we gave, a few years back, we gave Gary Anderson, the former Jordan designer, a bit of a choice because we thought, well, we want to, you know, it's the 191. Everyone loves the 191, the seven up car, the first Jordan F1 car. And he said, actually, an even better car that should probably make it into this is the 197. Mm. 1997 uh, Jordan Peugeot, which I thought looked absolutely cool as well. Mega looking thing. Uh, it had the best qualifying of second. It had the best result of second. The 97 Belgian Grand Prix. It was only the fifth fastest car across the season, but that was still quite close. That's still within about a percent of the pace, which in other areas that would be enough to get you a win or two. When we spoke to Gary about this, it was really uh, the driver lineup was a bit inexperienced. Uh, Giancarlo Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher who managed to crash into each other in Argentina, um, but they had lots of good results. Mm. But they were never they were never able to get that win. And he reckoned that if they'd kept Rubens Barrichello, who'd been in the year before, just because he was that bit more experienced, he, mm. he might have been able to get a win with it. I'm not sure whether the opportunity's there, which is why it's not higher up this list. Is I don't think there's a race that you can point to and go, yes, it should definitely have won that. So if Barrichello and Brundle have been driving it, it's not like, well, it was it was the driver, the, it was the inexperience yeah. that lost it. Yeah, yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was, I think, yeah, I think Fizzy and, and Ralph actually did a reasonable yeah. job over the balance of the season. I think Gary was saying they were both inexperienced and maybe right. with a more experienced hand it would have done better. But uh, he pointed to the, to the German Grand Prix um, which which Fizzy did lead, but I don't think anyone was going to beat Gerhard Berger that day. I mean, f- for me, that's Berger's like greatest rival. Almost uh, mm. back back after a break, his dad had just died under pressure from Briatore, and he just looked on another level that day. Uh, and he came out of the pits behind Fisichella, and you, you blinked, and he was past him. Um, so I think Gary felt Gary Anderson felt that oh, you know Fizzy should have worked harder. To keep him behind, but I don't. I don't think anyone was going to keep him behind. Whether it been Barrichello or Mark Schumacher in the car, I think Berger was going to win that day. So I don't really consider that to be a lost win. Mm. Uh, and he got a puncture anyway, um, so so he didn't. You know, he wouldn't have won anyway. So yeah, so it, it, it's a good car. I think it's a mega looking car, but it doesn't have a. We'll get to some on this list where you go, yeah, that was the day it should have won. I don't yeah. really feel that it has that. Uh, 
but yeah I thought it was worthy of, of being on there Is this in the right place JBL? I think so it's definitely worth including for sure because um, it was part of that uh, that lineage towards the end of the 90s where Jordan was uh, and I spoke about this in the, the previous podcast Jordan was starting to build up um, it kicked off 1991 amazingly and then taking on the free Amahas for 1992 it just fell off massively in comparison so it spent the 90s kind of building up again and uh, by this point it was competitive again um, Ralph Schumacher and Giancarlo Fisichella very evenly matched at this point you know had what Fisichella had, had done eight races in 96 and that was all the F1 experience they had and that day at Hockenheim, maybe you, Gerhard Berger is completely unassailable that day. The fact that Jordan had the, you know, at this point, the Peugeot engine was actually quite a quite a competitive prospect. And Havizic had to stick it on the front row on what is essentially a power circuit is underlines that performance. Um, you know, Peugeot had come a long way since coming into F1 in 1994 having uh, the engine in the McLaren that basically the flywheel would just fly out the back of it and uh, Martin Brundle having various issues throughout the season. Uh, By the time they'd got to Jordan, I think they'd actually developed quite a good working relationship with the technical team and started to build up that reliability and that power. And it all came crashing down again when uh, Peugeot went to Prost. Um, But uh, it was was a good car, the the 197. as a kid, I was a massive Jordan fan. Um, so uh, it, it, I can remember my dad bringing home a copy of F197 on the PlayStation. Oh, it was a mega game, that was. Brilliant game. And that's uh, I always used to play as uh, Physicala. So, um, yeah, fond memories of the car. Okay, moving on. What's next on the list? So number eight is the Lola Mark IV or 4A uh, from 1962, which was Lola's first Formula 1 car. Um, and it had a best finish of second at both the British and German Grand Prix that year. It was the fourth fastest car of the year. It did have a pole, although that was that time was dubious, I think. Mm. Um, so this Eric Broadley car driven by John Surtees. It was a little bit too flexible early on, um, but they beefed, they did beef up the chassis. And actually, at, at Silverstone, he finished second only to, to Jim Clark in the you know the sort of groundbreaking monocoque Lotus Twenty Five. And then he was involved in that fantastic German Grand Prix that we talked about in the Wet Weather Races uh, episode with uh, Graham Hill in the BRM and Dan Gurney in the Porsche, and he he finished uh, second there as well. Um, And actually, this is one of the few cars on the list that has actually won a Formula 1 race, but it was a non-championship race at Mallory Park. (laughs) Can you imagine a Formula 1 race at Mallory Park? The, uh, The 2000 Guineas. Yes. Uh, and uh, and to be fair, it did have Jim Clark, Graham Hill, and Jack Brabham in it. So it wasn't a you know it wasn't just that John turned up and beat a load of no what nobodies. He, it was a proper win, but it wasn't a world championship race, which is why it is on this list. Uh, and it finished um, yeah fourth in the constructors' table, which I think imagine a new team coming in now finishing fourth in the constructors' table would be pretty amazing, really. And your theory of cars that look good should be quick. I mean, it is very beautiful. It's pretty, isn't it? I, I think very it's pretty beautiful. Car. So JBL. Um, this, yeah, as Kev says, it was the start of Lola's time in Formula One. I think it was it was with the it was Bur- downhill from there. It was, uh, <laughs> Not quite. Actually. Exactly. That's a little bit unfair well, on the Hondola, isn't I'll it? Come, yeah, I'll come on to that in a minute. But um, yeah, it, um, run by the the Bowmaker team in 1962, um, did win non-championship races, um, but never it, uh, a world championship Grand Prix. Um, and it had that success in 62, uh, and then in 63, um, Bowmaker stopped running it and. Um, 
it was picked up by the Reg Parnell team, uh, Reg Parnell's team. Just didn't really have anything like the success that it had previously. Um, and then, but Lola continued its uh, Formula One involvement, um, particularly with, uh, with with the first Honda Formula One car, um, various forays in the 1970s and 1980s with, with MC Hill and the... Uh, Beatrice-backed Team Haas, not the Haas, not that Haas, the other one. Uh, Scuderia Italia as well uh, in 1993 with the the Chesterfield car, and then uh, Lola's involvement uh, basically came to an end in '97 with that uh, ill-fated Mastercard entry. I could talk for days about Lola's prospective 2010 F1 entry, but you know we're talking about a car from. Uh, 50 years before that so uh, I'll, I'll probably defer to the people that know more about that period than I do a podcast for another day as we like to say that's a whole different podcast oh, I like Lola we did a Lola special a few years back and got to speak to lots of because uh, mm. uh, that's what's been bought isn't it mm. uh, it's been it's been bought so Lola could hopefully return to her racetracks over the next next few years so the Lola story is a very interesting one um, so yeah I was, I was glad to get it on the list and so is the next story what's next so number seven is the Matra MS120 and in fact, if you remember when we talked about the best drivers not to win a World Championship Grand Prix, the winner of that... Can I give that away? Yes. We've already got that part. Yes. So yep. Chris Amon topped that list. Yep. And this car is kind of inextricably linked with him, really. Mm. So Matra decided for 1970 that they didn't really like to produce a car with the cost of DFV in the back. And Ken Till and Jackie Stewart went, mm, well, we're going to go and do our own thing then, thanks. Bye. So Matra ran their own chassis with their own uh, V12 engine. Uh, and the MS120 was that car. And it... it, it it kind of got better mm. um, in 71 and 72. It was actually the fourth quickest car uh, and it took two poles. But it, it's got a couple of races that it really should win. I mean, it did actually win the non-championship Argentinian Grand Prix in 71. Uh, but it could have won the Italian Grand Prix. That was the famous one where Chris Amon ripped off his, yep. his visor and was then won by Peter Gethin at a record speed. But the race that really gets it onto this list is the 1972 French Grand Prix, which Amon was winning comfortably. He picked it mm. as his race of my life. Uh, I think there was a new chassis for that weekend. He just said it was it was great straight out of the box, um, and off he disappeared down the road. Um, and then he got a puncture. He fell to eighth, and he charged through the field. And he was lapping two seconds faster than eventual winner Stewart uh, in his Tyrrell, uh, and he and he charged back, um, but you know had lost too much time. So he felt he had a clear margin over everyone. Mm. So we're into the we're into the realms of the cars now that should have had at least one winning day. Uh, so that's what's uh, that's what's got the matcher in at seven. JBL, a question for Kev: Would you perhaps argue that having Formula One's arguably unluckiest driver was actually to the team's detriment <laughs> in this instance? Uh, it, dep- it depends what you think. Why you think people are unlucky? Really? Um, I mean, I suppose. You've got to imagine that if Jackie Stewart's driving, it probably does win yeah. some races. But um, that, that's not meant to be a criticism of, of Chris Amon. Like that, that 72 French Grand Prix is, is ridiculous. Like he's, it's, you know, I think when we, did, we talked about Chris Amon in the other podcast, there were half, half a dozen races that he could have won, but there were two or three that he really should have won. And this was definitely, definitely one of them. Um, uh, he was convinced that, that basically the chassis were losing stiffness as they went. I think cars did in those days as they got used, their stiffness went a bit, uh, a bit woolly. And he, he always felt that the engines could have been a bit better, but um, they weren't as powerful as Matra liked to claim they were. But on that day, it was a fresh chassis and out he went. And really, he, it, was his, it was his weekend. Uh, it was there for the taking. Uh, and unfortunately, as with the rest of his career, 
in Formula One, uh, he didn't take it. Interesting car because, uh, as we all know, how successful Jackie Stewart was. You know, you'd have to look at that and think, well, why didn't Matra just kind of sanction? Okay, Tyrrell can run it with the Cosworth and we'll run it with the V12. But you, you, I get their point of view in that it's a Matra car and you want to show off the Matra product um, with the V12 engine. Um, the problem is with a V12, it's generally a bit more thirsty, possibly a little bit more unreliable compared to that, that DFV. Um you, you, you're going to lose something, and I think. Okay, let's move on. What's next on the list? So number six is the March Seven Eleven or Seven One One. Now, <laughs> I think this is actually about the ugliest car on the list, and it wasn't particularly fast. Its best qualifying position uh, was fifth, and it was only seventh on the super time, despite having rising star Ronnie Peterson uh, driving it. But the reason it's actually this high up on the list is because of its incredible sequence of second places. Ronnie actually managed to finish second in the World Championship with it. Uh, it was second at Monaco, British Grand Prix, Italian Grand Prix and Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, and in Italy, it lost by 0.01 seconds. So of all the cars on this list, it physically got closer to a World Championship Grand Prix win than anything else. So I bumped it up a bit further than, you know, I don't think it was better than the Matra, but I think it, it got closer more often, right. if that makes sense. It yeah. doesn't have a, an equivalent to the 72 French Grand Prix. Um, I don't think, um, but it, yeah, it just—it was just a very consistent, pretty reliable, solid uh, car for a, an F1 rookie to score lots of podiums. Um, and it was only their second F1 car. Mm. I think it's probably a bit better than the 701, which did win a race. Actually, maybe I put, put, should have put the March 701 in the worst cars to win a Grand Prix. I think it was my eleventh. I think a, a sort of very good at finishing second car. Tell us about the car, JBL. Well, it's one of the few Formula One cars which has the name that is also a date on the calendar. No? Okay. Tough crowds. On a serious note, I think it's a very distinctive (laughs) car because it had that T-tray front Mm. wing. Yeah. Um, It it looked like, you know, after the race, it would double up as, you know, you just uh, pop your kettle and your teapot and everything on it and uh, have a little tea party around the front end. Now, I remember back in uni, actually, um, I was doing this project where I was comparing four different Formula One front wings um, to compare them in terms of performance. And this was one of them. It was this, the, I think it's the Arrows A23 for some reason, uh, the the 2008 Force India. And I can't remember the fourth one. Uh, But I did an aerodynamic analysis of this and it was just, it was very rudimentary. It was rather than it was you know it was the early phase uh and the fact they turned this sort of wing upside down and balanced it on the top um you'd, you'd think what's the the aerodynamic benefit of that there isn't really one let's be honest there's more room to to stick a gurney flap on top um but it's too high up to derive any kind of uh kind of let's say ground effect or anything like that um you get vortex shedding at the tips and that just goes straight into the front tires and you're not really deriving much aerodynamic performance that way what it does have is it has a a wing profile you will get downforce out of it that's the bottom line um but that's just uh, looking at it from a sort of very very techie gaze um as as, as ted said uh, as kev said um it was very reliable consistent mm. uh good 
good way for sort of March to advertise its product. And if they were going to sell a customer car, it's probably the one you'd want at the time. It was it was it was a, a solid performer, um, and, and the seven hundred one, which Tyrrell had used the year before, uh, having split from Matra, which you know, nice segue from the previous one. Um, it wasn't as good, but Stuart managed to still win with it so lots of almosts didn't quite get there what's next on the list I so I've got to apologise because I think for the first time in the top 10 series uh, I've got a joint position oh no you why you okay Uh, so yeah I'm getting booze and things from around the room so so it's the Lotus 95T and the Renault RE50 so the reason they're together is they're both in the same season they've both got the same engine one of them finished further up in the championship the Lotus finished third because it was Mm. more reliable but the Renault got closer to winning a race Mm. Uh, Derek Warwick who who, who had the fortune slash misfortune of driving the RE50 he did pick it out as one of his uh, top three racing cars that he raced in his career and he did race a few um, and he reckoned it should have won several races um, the most obvious one I guess is is Brazil um, when he's, he was in the lead with a few laps to go but his suspension failure due to a, a clash he'd had earlier with Nicky Lauda's McLaren um, so yeah so they're both they were just both very good cars in a season mm. where they came up against you know the start of I guess McLaren's domination really the McLaren tag with Lauda and Alain Prost uh, won most things that season um, and but they were the Lotus and the Renault were kind of among the, the best of the rest perhaps along with the Ferrari the Brabham was quick as well um, so on super times the Lotus was third and the Renault was fourth but the Renault got close to winning so I thought it seems a bit harsh to separate them and they even had the same power plant so I've just boshed them in together <laughs> so I apologise maybe JBL would like to Pick one Casting over the vote, other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay. What goes uh, third? What goes fourth? I'll, I'll talk a little bit about them from from my own notes. Um, I think you'd have to say that maybe the ninety five T was with Mansell potentially a little bit closer to winning a race mm. uh, before he dropped it in uh, Monaco in 1984, which elicited a hilarious response from Lotus team manager uh, Peter War, who, who said uh, Mansell won't win uh, a Formula One Grand Prix as long as I have a hole in my ass." Nice. Um, he, he was... Incorrect. Yes. Times 31. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe... You know, Peter War had an operation we don't know about. I don't know. This has gone wrong, isn't it? This, <laughs> but this is uh, this was a car that was, um, you know, it was uh, one of the mm. just after Colin Chapman had died. Uh, it was one of the the first, if not the first, car to be uh, developed out with. Uh, with I think the eighty three car was developed by uh, Gerard Ducarouche as well, who also developed this car. Um, Lotus had fallen into a bit of a slump by this point because the the, the experiment with the Lotus eighty eight hadn't worked. Lotus eighty one wasn't particularly quick. Um, you know, Colin Chapman then you know passed away, uh, and Lotus sort of deferred to to Peter War, who was his deputy. Uh, so Gerard Ducruge came on board in in eighty three, um, and and sort of put the team back on the right track. And um, this was at a point where you know in eighty five, uh, yeah. Senna came on board and they started winning again a little bit more regularly before their eventual um, demise. And I think um, with the Renault, it was it was the same story in the engine department because they were both powered by the the, the Renault Turbo. Uh, it wasn't a particularly fuel efficient engine. Let's say it was very very thirsty. Um, the the Renault RE50 was 
you know, Warwick got got podiums out of it, but it was quite a fragile car. Um, and I was talking to Jean-Claude Mijot about, uh, you know, his time at Renault back back in that time as well. Um, and Renault had a really, really poor wind tunnel. And uh, he originally in the mid 1980s so the the Tyrrell 019 which would be a contender for this list if I had written it just mm. to, just to sort of sidetrack us um with its sort of high nose he'd originally tested that when he was at Renault sort of developing the cars around this era but because the wind tunnel was so bad uh the effect of a high nose was inconclusive so he was like oh, maybe I'll try this again later <laughs> and uh you know then it defined F1 car design but I think I'd maybe have Lotus higher on the list than the Renault. Uh, that's just kind of personal gut feeling. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong in this instance. I'm not sure you can prove it wrong. This is mm. why it's a fun uh, fun debate. Yeah, maybe I, up to the listeners, I'll maybe. Prove me subjectively wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, oh, you know, I can't believe I put them equal fourth. Um, it doesn't seem like too much of a cop-out. If you were genuinely stuck then well I think there were just so many similarities the season the engine etc etc I mean JBL's broken them down nicely there but uh, yeah alright okay so should we say Lotus is fourth and Renault's fifth we go with JBL yes Kev has done the metaphorical you know skim some stones against a pond and have a ponder and now he's uh, now he's agreed oh with God. me it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. There we go. What's next on the list? Right, so we're into some, I think, you know, some proper proper kit now. So number three uh, is the Shadow DN5, the 1975 car. Uh, it had three poles. I think it's the only car on this list with that many World Championship poles. Yep. It was fifth fastest on the Super Times, which doesn't sound that great, but it was quicker than both the March and the Hesketh that year, which both got a win each. Yep. Um, and the reason it's the other reason it's so hard on this list is because it really had one race that it was completely in the bag. The same argument mm. for its driver, Jean Pierre right. Jarier, uh, and at, uh, at, he took pole for the first two races. Um, crown wheel and pinion failure prevented him from even starting in Argentina. But right. in Brazil, um, he was 0.8 seconds quicker than the second fastest in qualifying. I mean, 0.8 seconds is a massive margin, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and he was only eight laps from home and the cam arm of his fuel metering unit seized. And I talked to designer Tony Southgate about this and he said no one had ever had that before and after the race the car started up and it never happened again. Mm. So just a real freak, weird uh, happening that prevented both Jerry and Shadow winning that particular race. Qualified second and third at Monaco. Basically, it needed an experienced driver, I think. Mm. You know, Price uh, spun out of the, the British Grand Prix after taking pole. 
Um, he did win the 975 race of champions at Brands Hatch. So this is another car that did win an F1 race against a proper field. Yep. But it just didn't get onto that world championship uh, winner's list. Um, and Southgate Rest said, you know, it was, it was very good aerodynamically, good in the high speed stuff. Uh, and he felt that it really should have should have won a race. And he, he, he reckoned that it perhaps would have done had they not got a little bit distracted. Uh, Jarier convinced Don Nichols, the team founder, to put a match of V12 in the car to create the DN7. <laughs> mm. And that was bigger and heavier, but more powerful. So lo and behold, once they developed it, it was basically the same. Yep. It's like, all we've done is waste time developing something that's no better. Um, and of course they had an F5000 programme so he basically said we were fighting on too many fronts and if we'd just been able to focus on this car it, it, it could, should, would have won, won a Grand Prix and the DN5B which fared much better in 75 also driven by Jarriet and Price uh, far fewer retirements again couldn't get that win do you, are you classing them as different cars or are you lumping that all together? Was it officially a, a B-spec car? No, it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the, uh, the 1975 season. Sorry, 76, really what, yeah, I should have said. Yeah, the 76 um, car, far fewer retirements, got a list of great results, but none of those could break into the top three. So. Yeah, I think I think it's mainly the, the, original, the original 75 car, car because of how quick it was and how yeah. close at certain venues and how close it got to winning. Um you know, for, for an F1 car to have three poles and not take a win in those mm. days, uh, pretty pretty amazing, really. And, and I do wonder, I mean, you know, Tom Price and Jean-Pierre Jarry are both candidates for our best drivers not to win a World Championship Grand Prix. Mm. But again, you know, you do wonder what an established mm. front-running driver might have been able to do with, uh, you know, with that car. Someone who was used to winning, you know, with the experience uh, might, have, might have been able to get one. Also, a really distinctive-looking car. JBL, what are your thoughts on this one? I think it fits into this really sort of cool aesthetic from maybe the time sort of like from the kind of 50s to kind of 70s, sort of like the idea of this shadow, like some kind of serialised radio drama or something like that. And uh, Don Nichols, the team principal, um, dressed in very much the same way, like some kind of, uh, you know, vigilante detective or something like that. And it was a very good looking car. It was it was quick. It was it was you know, it was fragile in the early years. And I think that kind of got temp I know it's mainly looking at the results of seventy six, but I think they managed to temper that reliability a little bit and, and price got some decent results. And Jarrier qualified well, but he just didn't get the results in the race, mm. which is, you know, what you're going to be judged on. Um but yeah, that seventy five season it had kind of shown itself to be a very very strong team and it's kind of it's weird to look at this because uh, we've done uh, the the worst car, worst cars podcast before that it's weird that this car mm-hmm. hasn't won a race and we have the dna in that list which did uh, and and was a, a definitely a worst car so it's from an aesthetic standpoint as well it's a shame that we're talking about uh, this on this list but it was uh, it was a very very cool car um, mm. and yeah it was uh, of, of, of its time yeah what would Alan Jones have done with it if he'd been around mm. a couple of years earlier um, yeah alright what's uh, in second place so number two is the Bar 006 2004 right. it was the second fastest car of its season it's the only one on this list that was the second fastest um, and it finished second in the constructors table and in almost any year that would be ample to win well potentially quite a few races so where didn't it so it win? didn't win because it came up against it was a very very good car that came up against one of the f1 greats in the f2004 ferrari which was not only incredibly quick mm. and reliable and driven by mark schumacher it also had a team 
that ran it properly. So basically, this is this is F1 optimization, I think, in its first era, if you like, the the sort of Ross Braun Giantot era Ferrari. Mm. So it finished second at San Marino, Monaco, Germany, Chinese GP. Um, and Jensen Button was brilliant in it, I think. Uh, but but Monza for me sums up why it didn't win. Um, uh, it was a sort of one of those ones with sort of uh, dodgy conditions at the start. Barrichello started on wets that was wrong. Mark Schumacher had a spin. Button got the lead. He led half the race, and both of the F two thousand fours came back at him at more than a second a lap. Wow. And so they just opened up and just destroyed the entire field. Um, the he had a fantastic charge from 13th to second Hockenheim the one that you might say got away when Monaco uh, where Ferrari slipped up was at Monaco but he'd out, been out qualified by Jarno Trulli on, in the Renault on his special lap and he was on Trulli's gearbox at the end of the race mm. but I mean you're going to overtake at Monaco no you are not not normally so it, it basically did everything um, it had 960 brake horsepower they reckoned uh, and it also had uh, a torque transfer braking system on it, which was immediately banned, which I'm sure <laughs> JBL would probably could explain more on. But it was just it was just a brilliant car up against a great car that never dropped the ball, really. Yep, 006 JBL. BAR was a, an interesting point because it had come into Formula One with all this bravado. Uh, it, it's, uh, <laughs> let's say courted the ire of the FIA in its first year because it wanted to run two liveries and didn't had a car that was quick but very very unreliable um and they had to sort of undo the damage and once the team restructured once Craig Pollock was gone um Dave Richards came in um in 2000 and you know put the work in over 2002 Mm. and 2003 was markedly improved and that's when Jensen Boston came in Um, and at that point Jacques Villeneuve had been there since the beginning you know it was uh, as much his team as it was Craig Pollock's Uh, it was no longer his environment and there was this change uh, in in the dynamic, Villeneuve was gone. Button was leading the team. Takuma Sato had come in because you know Honda was now massively involved here. Mm. Uh, Jeff Willis was uh, heading up the car design, having moved over from Williams. It was a much more professional uh, outfit, and um, yeah, I would have said that you know Monaco was potentially the one that got away. And I think even though Trulli had uh, been stronger in qualifying, and you you can't overtake at Monaco. Mm. There was still a chance for Button, I think, to do it in the pit strategy. But unfortunately, uh, when he did pit, it just wasn't as fortuitously timed, let's say. And that cost him an opportunity uh, finish the race um, 0.4 seconds behind Yano Trulli at the end of it. It is, a, it is a bit of a travesty that this car never won. And uh, it was a combination of Ferrari being so quick in the early season and then inexplicably Williams and McLaren winning races with subpar cars and uh, uh, and um, Renault managing to, to chalk up that win at Monaco but BAR just not managing to do it and um, yeah it was uh, that, that, that torque transfer system it wasn't new in Formula 1 uh, Benetton had tried something similar with it in um 1999 but it was it was very very heavy uh, and it, co- it ultimately mm. cost Benetton actually a second a lap on that car uh, because it was it, it ruined the balance so much but but what it meant was that it could kind of work as like a second differential at the front basically and you could um, you know independently uh, you know outside of the kind of Ackerman steering uh, properties with the car um, 
control things and it just made it a much better handling uh, car. Um, yeah, it was a very, very strong uh, effort. Uh, and then the final BAR after that, uh, it wasn't as good. And then it was, uh, to that 2005 car was also banned for two races because they'd had a secret fuel reservoir in the car. They drained the car and they were like, hmm, this isn't right here. And uh, it was banned for two races. So uh, Button couldn't do, couldn't earn let's say uh, a reprieve in Monaco the following year because he was uh, in the ITV uh, gantry doing the commentary for that race. Of course, yeah. And Ann Davidson was the test driver in 03 and 04. And that's 20 years ago. And he's he's still around test driving cars. and, and For uh, that team. Uh, yes. So, number one. So, number one is the 1977 Brabham BT45B. This is where the B is right. important. This is important. <laughs> Because the 76 car, which is the 45, uh, so this was when Bernie Exton, uh, owner of Bram at the time, went to Gordon Murray's designer. Yeah, you've got, uh, instead of those lovely Cosworth DFEs, <laughs> you've got an Alfa Romeo flat 12. It's going to be really powerful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it's really big and thirsty and the, not the right shape. And his first shot at it, didn't, you know, which he cobbled together, wasn't, wasn't wonderful. <laughs> the 76 campaign wasn't good. But he, he sorted it out for 77, tied up the arrow and various other, other bits and bobs. Um, and it was the third fastest car of the season, so not quite as strong as the BAR. Right. But the Ferrari that won the championship in 97 was fourth. So it was quicker than the car that won both championships in uh, 77. Uh, and it reason it just jumps in ahead of um, the BAR. Well, one, first of all, mm. it's got a martini livery, right? That's cool. So if we can be a bit subjective, I'm going to throw that in as just like, <laughs> that's just... just that's, cool but also because of how close it got to winning races I think it probably got a bit closer to winning uh, than the than the 2004 bar BAR um, and the, the, the famous one I suppose is the French Grand Prix where you know Watson leads pretty much the whole race Mario Andretti comes up behind him in the ground effects Lotus this is you know last Lotus are kind of getting the ground effects thing together um, and he holds him off. He's got the power to hold him off. You know, Watty was, was an established Grand Prix winner by then. You know, he knew he knew what he was about, and and Mario didn't have anything for him until the final lap when the Alpha spluttered briefly. Mario got alongside and won. And I spoke to, to John Watson about this at length, and and he, even now he's not really sure. They're not really sure why that happened. He was then battling for the lead with James Hunt at Silverstone for the British Grand Prix as well, and had a similar thing. There's this weird, mysterious fuel issue they had. Mm right at crucial points um, of the season uh, and yeah he Watson ended the campaign with just one podium and nine points but he could have scored I, I went through the races and he could have scored three times that many <laughs> uh, and that was obviously in the days before we had 25 points for a win and all the rest of it mm. so yeah, it was. Uh, they'd actually also experimented with some carbon brakes, Brabham, around that time as well. They didn't actually kind of press on with it properly until the early eighties. But yeah, so it was Gordon Murray, innovative, great looking car, and you know should have won one, maybe two races, um, and I think had a pole as well. Let me just check that. Yeah, had a pole, um, which Carlos Parche took before he was unfortunately he was killed in a, yeah. a um, an accident away from the circuit. So yeah. It, it sort of ticked all the boxes for me, really, to just pip the BAR. Um, but I'm looking across the JBL to see if he, he agrees. It is a great livery. That martini livery is fantastic, isn't it? It looks so good. Why was it disqualified from the US West Grand Prix? Is that a, a car infringement? Or oh, I don't know why that was disqualified. I'd have, have to, to look that, that one up. Um, but whether that was a, a a blemish on its its record. JBL, what do you think? 
I think for as as alongside the reasons that the that Kev has mentioned that it should be on this list, I think, you know, the loss of Carlos Bache that season was another because I think they lost at that point another driver that could take a win in that car. You know, he's uh, considered one of the lost stars um, of Formula One. He was the reason why Bernie Ecclestone once signed uh, Nicky Lauda for, for 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 78, I think, simply because uh, they'd if they kept if Pache mm. stayed stayed alive, then they wouldn't have needed to go and sign louder. And uh, and Watson was a fantastic driver, uh, and you know won races, but you wouldn't consider him maybe of louder's echelon. Um, but, but he had to lead the team. Uh, Hans Joachim Stuck came in as well, fantastic sports car driver, but again not someone that you would consider um, somebody that was going to take that car and, and, and thrust it into the limelight um, had good races uh, both got decent results that season but I think losing your figurehead driver so early in the year um, that, that costs you a lot and it costs you a lot of momentum and it costs you know having somebody in that team that was blessed with that talent and also knew that car the fact that you've got to go and bed somebody else in um particularly with you know various other peculiarities i think getting your head around that that boxer alpha engine uh you know it's going to have certain techniques let's say to get around all of the around all of the torque and uh that sort of thing um it it, it, it strikes you down i think i think you have to you, you lose that momentum. I think I think the alphas were pretty inconsistent as well in terms of what they supplies pick up point uh, you know mm. pick up points and uh, uh, the amount of power it produced mm. like the weight. I, I think Gordon Murray was used to a very consistent product from Cosworth, the DFV, and had to. So I think it was a car that m- probably made the most of the mm. Alpha engine, except for this weird fuel issue. Um, and actually, that's a really good point about Parcher. I mean, um, Bernie Eccleston was, was quoted as saying that if Parcher had lived, he wouldn't have needed louder. I mean, that's that's huge. <laughs> that's a that's a big yeah. thing to say. So that 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 is a, a very good point. Uh, and just to go back to your disqualification question, uh, it was a push start, legal push start. Oh, okay. So nothing to do with wasn't the, the car. Nothing no to blemish do with on the, the car. Nothing to do with the car. Um, no, the dubious problems came later uh, <laughs> when it came to the galaxy. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I guess that maybe the, the the stats kind of say that it should be the BAR number one mm. in this, but I don't know, just the fact that it's, the Brabham just is a bit cooler and it did get, I think that French Grand Prix was what is. I think, I think he, he yeah. should have won Should have won that. This should not be on the list. Yeah. Great car had chances to win. Now, this one is on display at the Alfa Romeo Museum in Milan. So why we didn't record this podcast there and uh, put that one on the expense I mean, account. ka I think, um, is the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how well that would have gone down with the, bo- with the boss. And he needs to go to Milan, to the Alfa Romeo Museum, to record this one podcast so we could stand around it and talk about it. I mean, maybe next time. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. 
Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com, code SUMMER. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I just wanted to ask JBL because of the cars oh, that, okay. didn't, that oh. didn't make it, if that's all right. Yeah, because you've already yeah. mentioned the, the Tyrrell. Yeah, the Tyrrell 019 was... It's, it's mainly... I'm, I'm very biased for it. It's one of my favorite cars uh, aesthetically. And I think... Lacey could have won with that car. Uh, he could have won with the 018 as well earlier that season in Phoenix, uh, and he could have done the deed in uh, in Monaco. Um, mm. That monoshock front suspension on street circuits was was incredibly strong. Mm. That could have won something. And also, I'm going to go slightly left field here, and I know it was from a season where the powertrain it had had such a huge advantage over everything else. But I'm going to say the Williams FW36 from 2014 because I think that car had the pace to win. Massa and Bottas got poles in it. But I think the Silverstone that season was Williams' best chance of getting a win that year. I think they could have done it. I think they were way too conservative with their strategy um, and, and basically just gave the win to Mercedes. And I think they probably could have done something because I don't think it was just having a good engine that did for that car because McLaren had that powertrain. Force India had that powertrain. They weren't anywhere as near at the front compared to that Williams. So I think mm. that that could have, that that had a missed opportunity. Interesting stuff. Yeah, they're pretty good shouts. I mean, I do like the Tyrrell. Yeah. Um, and I think I argued in the Tyrrell podcast mm-hmm. that someone with more experience than a Lacey perhaps would have got my hour out of it, which would... <laughs> Because he did throw it off a few times as well, didn't he? Mercurial. Uh, exactly, yeah, which sums up his career quite quite nicely. <laughs> um, so the Tyrrell, and of course it did... See, well, I don't know if you, this is a for and against, mm. but it kind of invented that high wing thing, uh, which on the Tyrrell looked quite nice. But when it got... When all the cars had it and you ended up with the Benetons with the high noses, I was like, I'd like the noses and the front wings being on the deck not up in the air I think the most egregious uh, one was in mid 1994 with the Pacific PR01 that the early season one it was just basically stand basically a less developed version of that Benetton but midway through the season they looked like they gaffer taped up the uh, the nose the nose pylons uh, the front wing pylons and it just had this horrible uh, horrible effect um, and I don't in- entirely know why they they did that maybe they found that it was too efficient and they wanted to be even worse but um, <laughs> it had its pros and it had its cons I was thinking would we would I put the Tyrrell in ahead of the Williams though they're kind of significant cars in different ways I would fair enough <laughs> and that's our podcast series for this time thank you we'll be Thanks back very much on the, well, I mean, we'll always be back. There's stuff to discuss, but this series, as in this 
Series 4. We'll be back. This is Series 3. Series 4 will be, yes. if I can twist your arm, Martin, I yes. can do a Le Mans one. Yes. Around the centenary. Yeah, it's a funny old year. But don't worry, we, we I'll, I'll, well. I'll also work on Series 5, so we've got some F1 and other bits and bobs to look at. Okay, yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a big year, so, uh, so we'll do that uh, with Le Mans, and we'll look forward to that. That's the end of this current series of our Top 10s list. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll catch you on the next one. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.